The technology landscape is exploding, and it has never been a better time to be an entrepreneur. There's so much information out there, it can be hard to know where to start or who to trust. Your host, David Paul, is a seasoned venture capital investor that has founded his own investment firm, DWP Capital. He's a straight shooter that cuts through all the noise to bring you real and authentic conversations with investors, founders, and operators in the startup ecosystem. Join him each week to stay current with today's trends and get smarter about startups and tech investing. Today, I'm interviewing Sammy Abdullah, the managing partner of Blossom Street Ventures. Sammy refers himself as the anti-VC, and we'll discuss why later. He has deployed over $39 million in venture capital in uh, over 25 companies uh, within eight funds. Was that pretty good, Sammy? It's great. Was all that, was all that true? Mm-hmm. Yeah. What does that mean, the anti-VC? We do not operate like traditional VC. So, for instance, whereas maybe a more traditional VC will take weeks or months to get to a no, I'll get to a no probably within a phone call. Whereas they might take a long time to get the term sheet. Our term sheets, I usually turn around in 48 hours if your data is good. We do not unicorn hunt. Uh, we are not looking for 10x cash on cash returns. We're looking for 3x in three years. Uh, the goal is not to you know, make you go big or go broke, right? Uh, we do not believe in high burn models. You need to build a real business uh, and grabbing market share uh, without a real view of where burn is today uh, is, is not something we're built for. So we invest a lot differently. We behave a lot differently. We're really transparent. I mean, we put our fund performance on our website, right? We put SaaS metrics up on our website that we follow. So we, we run a, quite a bit differently. So we call ourselves the anti-BC. Yeah. And you run with conviction, which is good. I see a lot of venture capitalists. They kind of mally mouth founders. They don't want an opportunity to say no in case they do get better around, you know, if they have a kind of inflection point or they just don't want to be confrontational, right? Um, either or. But before we talk about your extensive venture career, let's talk about what really matters. And that's the work you do around rescue animals. I appreciate you bringing that up. So, uh, I have my wife and I have two rescue dogs. Pepe is the first rescue dog I ever got. He's part of our team. He's on our website too. Uh, and <laughs> MD Pepe, uh, MD Pepe yeah. only needs MD Pepe only needs one data point to make a decision. Pepe, any success we've had is directly attributable to Pepe. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> All the attribution for the return is, is, yeah, is right. it's a senior Pepe. So I try to help out rescue dogs whenever I can. I post about them on my LinkedIn and Facebook. Me and a few friends are trying to raise $600,000 to shoot a documentary about rescue animals. And, and uh, you know, we, we believe that a lot of people uh, who buy their dog just don't realize that there's a real euthanasia problem uh, uh, with dogs and cats. Uh, and, and they're just not aware of how just wonderful a rescue animal is. And, and, and there's probably a lot of myth out there uh, that they believe. Uh, and so 
uh, that's a project that I'm working on very actively. Yeah, there's uh, the numbers are staggering, right? Like, what's the yeah. number of rescues that are available, like compared to the dogs that are, I guess, like pure breeds on the market? It's like it's like four X or something, right? The amount of yeah. available, you know, free or like free dogs that are you know perfectly fine that need homes. There's something like three million dogs a year that are acquired by families or individuals. Uh, something like 2 million of those are purebreds. And, I, and I'm putting general numbers around there because we, we don't actually have perfect data around this. Sure. Uh, and, uh, you know, something like 700,000 to a million plus on some estimates, uh, uh, dogs are being euthanized annually. Anyway, that, that's, that's a, a, something that I'm very passionate about and something that I'd, I'd like to see change. Yeah. So what was the story between like you and getting into this, right? I mean, what was the, what was the, the genesis of this, this mission? Cause I'm looking for stuff for myself. I'm like, what am I really interested in to dig deeper on a philanthropic basis? And, you know, I'm jealous that you have yours ironed out. The genesis of this was when I got Pepe, right? I was not a dog person. He just, you know, he jumped into a buddy's car actually. Uh, and, uh, you know, just, changed my, my view on animals, dogs, everything. So I wanted to solve the problem. I embarked on a, uh, a couple of ideas that were terrible. So first thing I ever did uh, to solve this problem, I tried to create the Tinder for dogs. Uh, uh, so you would swipe on a rescue dog <laughs> that like you would it. see. It was a terrible idea. Uh, couldn't get it off the ground. Uh, then. Um, I actually partnered with Adopt-A-Pet uh, to create software that would help help animals during natural disasters, right? So something like 700,000 animals died during Katrina. This is something Adopt-A-Pet was very passionate about. I raised about $35,000 for that project. Wow. You couldn't, you couldn't get it stood up. Uh, it was, it was, that was a, a disaster. Um, and so after those two failures, I realized over time that... Uh, we are not going to tech our way to solving this problem. We do not need another app. We do not need another website. Um, and at the same time, documentaries were having a big impact on, you know, we all watched Blackfish. Uh, that changed SeaWorld's business model. They will not be acquiring new orcas uh, once mm-hmm. their current ones pass away. Uh, game changers, uh, turned me into a part-time vegan. And I think it did for yeah. a lot of people. Every time I watch a, a, a Netflix documentary on meat, I stop eating meat for like two hours and then, right. you know, <laughs> you know I, I, and I think, you know, I can't name a single person that didn't watch either of the Firefest documentaries. So mm-hmm. I, I think the new, a new interesting way to pass information on is via documentary or podcast. Uh, and so that's, you know, something I'm trying to do is put together a documentary about rescue dogs. Um, I'm a long way away from getting it done uh, from a fundraising perspective. So it's, it's, it's a project that I'm still working on. Well, I'm in, you know, I got, you got a check written for my, my name on it. Tell me a little bit about how, where'd you grow up? Were you always a Texas kid? From Houston originally. Um, Went to school at UT, ended up in Dallas. I've always been in uh, finance roles of some sort. Uh, worked at a, a credit opportunities fund, which is a fancy word for a hedge fund that plays with debt. Uh, uh, worked at a large institutional investor. 
uh, worked at a boutique investment bank. Uh, so I've, I've kind of been in multiple roles. Uh, eight years ago, started Blossom Street Ventures. Uh, and we've had more good than bad happen. So I get to keep doing this. Right. And so that was... So you went to college. Where'd you go to college? Uh, uh, UT in Austin. University of Texas in Austin. University of Texas in Austin. And then you know you wanted to do finance. And then you kind of leapfrogged into the hedgy slash IB world and kind of learned your... Being a model monkey, learned the ropes of kind of the inner workings of finance. Yeah. When did the passion of tech and tech investing come into into your life? I mean, Dallas is in the hotbed um, for technology. So how did that come about? Yeah, I'll be real honest. It wasn't a passion to it. Uh, you know, I, I do this because uh, we continue to be good at it. Um, this all happened on accident. So I was working at that hedge fund. Uh, in the meantime, me and some buddies invested in a bar in Houston. It was our first private deal ever. Uh, I love that deal. And I wanted to find more deals like it. Could have been a laundromat, a restaurant, a bar, a, a tech company, whatever. And so uh, a few friends and I put up a website for an angel network called the Dallas Angel Network. The website still exists today. It's, you know, it was done for free and, and it, you know, it, it, it's not, it's not a beautiful site, but it floated to the top of Google. Entrepreneurs would find us, investors would find us. Uh, and, you know, how old were you then? Uh, man, this is back in 2010. Uh, so I would have been 28, 29. So you had some shekels uh, that you could throw into some of these. A little into bit, a, bar. a little yeah. bit, a little bit. Not much, not much. But yes, uh, you know, look, I've lost a lot of money in the stock market. I knew I was bad at that, right? I don't have the emotional intelligence to play stocks. Yeah. Uh, and so... Too easy to sell, right? Yeah, totally. Exactly. The liquidity was hurting me. Anyways, we started this angel group for fun. Uh, it grew over time. We built up a lot of goodwill with the community because we were free. Uh, and at some point I realized there was a fund there. Uh, and so we killed the angel group, raised a small pool of capital of our first fund back in 2014. Um, we've been doing it ever since. Who's we? It's the Royal version. So I am the only employee. I run the day to day. I do all the work and that's why, you know, uh, that's why we can move so fast. I do have a partner, Kevin Vela. Uh, we are very close. But Kevin runs his law firm full-time, Bella Wood. And arguably, in my view, the best venture attorneys uh, there are, period, in the nation. He's a, he's a machine. Uh, he's, he's the, machine. He's he's the startup lawyer in Texas, right? He's, he's the best. And so, uh, you know, the we is Kevin and I. The we is my board. I do have a board. I chair that board. Uh, I do tell founders when I get on the phone with them, look, when I use the word we, it's really the royal version. Uh, I do all the work. I run the day-to-day. Uh, but yeah, you know, do big decisions get done without Kevin? Absolutely not. Mm-hmm. And you raised all the capital, yeah? Uh, Kevin and I raised all the capital, correct. Got it. Okay. Not similar to most venture funds where there's a couple of key people that do most of the work, right? And just so happens you're actually the decision maker too, which makes it pretty nice. I am the associate. I am the managing director uh, and uh, the chairman. Uh, so the good news is, if you know, if a founder hears from me, uh, you know, I, I'm I'm not just fishing, right? I'm really looking for deal flow and and a pretty key decision maker. So, so what was the thinking around bringing a board in? Was that in, like initially something that you did because you wanted they were you know initial seeders of the fund? Was it to put some governance in place of investing decisions? How do you look at it? 
it was adult supervision. You know, at the mm-hmm. time I was yeah, very young, uh, still feel young, uh, but I was 30 uh, and gosh, what did I know? Right. And so the board was there to help me. Uh, they had more experience than I did. Uh, they are all on our website. You can see them there, right? Some of them have been very successful. Um, but yeah, they are, none of them is a large investor in our fund. Uh, we did not put the board together based on check size. We put it together based on, you know, we believe these are the smartest investors that we have. And so, yeah, the, the board was there to make sure I didn't screw up. Yeah. I think I need one of those. I think just better, better decisions happen in collaboration, right? I mean, it's hard to, it, it's, it, it's, it's, they, someone told me the other day, or I heard it on a podcast that if you want, if you want to go fast, work alone. If you want to work long, get a partner. I, the board has been incredibly valuable. Um, they've gotten some things right where I wanted to put money into certain companies a year or two later, those companies were gone. They've gotten some things wrong. They, you know, there's been some, some exits that have happened on companies that they've killed that I wanted to do. Uh, but net net, uh, I don't regret any of it. Uh, I'm very glad to have them. Uh, especially early on, I think I would have done a lot of dumb things. I wouldn't be here. The board early on was extremely, extremely valuable. The board today still valuable, but, uh, it would be unfair to say that they are as valuable as they were on day one. They're not. It does make you think, Hey, how is my board going to react to this deal term? How is the board going to react to this deal? And so once you are accountable to somebody else, we need a seven out of eight vote to get anything done at Blossom Street. Uh, it does, I have found, instill a level of discipline uh, in me. We'll always have a board. I'll never get rid of the board. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it's, it, is, it is valuable to have, even if it's just from a mindset perspective. Yeah. No, I, I agree. I agree with that. I think we're in the business of people picking first and then making good decisions second, right? And I think that that second piece doesn't happen in a vacuum. Right. Um, no, it's, it's, it's good to have somebody, even if you are, uh, even if you're the best at what you do, it's really nice to be accountable to somebody else in your peer group. That is that, you know, I, I would argue of, among my, my board, I would argue I'm the best at what I do. I'm running the fund, right? But sure. I'm accountable to them. Uh, and that is very valuable for me from a mindset perspective. So on the board, are they tech operators? Are they financiers? All the above? Are tech, uh, it's a blend. Uh, uh, we have one individual on the board. She sold her business in a fantastic exit. Uh, arguably our most successful board member. We have another individual on the board who uh, sits on the boards of banks. He has a much more private equity type view, right? A much more like, okay, cash efficiency is important. Burn's important. How are we going to get out of the burn, right? Uh, we have another individual who uh, uh, ran very large sales teams. So he can tell me this sales structure works. This is a good comp structure, right? Like he, he can get into the really nitty gritty with me. Yes. They all have a SaaS or tech background of some sort. Okay. Very cool. The anti-VC model, I kind of look at it as almost a, a growth equity model or a structured growth equity model. Um, 
less less binary outcomes, three to five X in three to five years. It's a very similar to structure to DWP capital, post-product market fit, early commercialization. Was that the original thesis or was that something that evolved over time? Evolved. So when uh, our first fund ever back in 2014, our goal was to be the venture fund of North Texas. Every, every deal in Dallas and Fort Worth, we wanted to see and do. And we thought we could be regional. Gosh, a few months in, I quickly realized, uh, given how we invest, what we care about valuation, uh, we could never deploy capital with a regional-only model. Uh, so we quickly brought it. There's not scope. enough deals, right? Not enough deals. Not, yeah. Right. Uh, there's plenty of deals if you'll pay any price, right? But if you want to be price disciplined... Right. Or, or stay within post product market fit, like or else you're just kind of you're just coming in too early and you're kind of indexing the, the market, right? It, it, it would have been, uh, we would not have been able to deploy the capital, period. And so quickly changed to a national focus. And then um, I was additionally having trouble finding deals at a uh, uh, what I would consider a fair valuation. Uh, and so we shifted again to be. Uh, to, to leverage our strengths, right? Our strengths were speed, our strengths were flexibility, transparency. So we were looking for uh, inside rounds we could price or fill, uh, fast rounds, uh, small rounds in really big companies whereby other VC can't get their ownership thresholds, supplementing new debt with our equity, right? So situations, special situations, quote unquote, whereby the company was healthy and good shape, nice income statement, cash efficient, but where our flexibility and speed could solve a real problem for the founder. And, and as a result, you know, we're not paying 20 X. Right. So that's, that's, that's been the model and it, it, it did evolve into that. Yeah. So what, when did that happen? I mean, so there's eight funds, right? So yeah. when did, from fund one to fund eight, when did that kind of transfer? Fund one right away. Uh, <laughs> that's uh, a quick learn, huh? It was a quick learn. Very quick. I got, you know, I raised, uh, Kevin and I raised a, a, a million bucks, from 33 investors in fund one in 2014. And within the second month, I was like, oh man, uh, I don't have any companies to look at. Uh, and so the mandate had to broaden uh, in terms of where we would go. Uh, but it also had to be, it also had to focus a bit in terms of what we would do so that, you know, we weren't just spraying and praying. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And so tell me about the fundraising piece of that, because, you know, being early emerging managers, you're not really an emerging manager anymore, you're through eight funds, but earlier days, you know, wrangling the first couple million bucks, you know, without the track record. Tell us, tell us the audience about that experience. Yeah. So what I would tell anybody uh, listening is um, there's a few ways to get into venture, right? Uh, the most common way and the route that was not open to me was to have an incredible GPA, go work at an investment bank, uh, and, uh, uh, you know, get into a top tier firm and then quit that firm and use the fact that you have such great pedigree to raise a, a fund. Uh, I could not do that. Uh, and, um, you know, that route's not open to too many individuals. Yeah, that persona is shrunk. Shrunk. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other way to get into venture is to literally have a rich uncle or individual that really likes you. And that's not a joke, right? Like, there's a lot of funds out there that are, you know, started out or are single LP funds. That's a way to get in. So if you have an uncle who's got 10 million bucks and is like, hey, I really like you. I trust you. I want you to invest this money. Well, boom, now you're in business. Pepe's going to join us 
There's oh, yeah. Right there. Look at him. That's a good-looking dog. How old's Pepe? Yeah, we don't know. Probably eight. Pepe is he's fantastic. Yeah, right? you can't, like, cut a toenail and look at the rings or anything? No. <laughs> <You can't. laughs> okay. That doesn't work. The, the third way to get into venture, uh, I've found, uh, I've seen some individuals do this, is to take a little capital of your own, right? Uh, save some money. Let's say you've saved $100,000. Uh, successfully invest that in startups. Uh, you know, and you'll be very early stage, right? But find some companies on AngelList, find companies locally, whatever it might be. Let those businesses mature a little bit. And now you've built a bit of a track record. Uh, so that's a very unique way to get into venture. It takes a little time, but it's a very unique way to get into venture is, is to kind of establish that track record yourself. Um, in terms of how I got in, I got in the fourth way, which is the catch-all for, you know, get in any way you can. Kevin and I and a couple of buddies, we started an angel network and, you know, we eventually morphed, right? And so from a process perspective today for me, it's been great. Our investors are all high net worth individuals. Uh, I call the capital on day one. So the money sits in a bank account right away because I don't want to chase a bunch of high net worths. And that, that's uh, that's uh, not typical. It's not for, typical. No, right. but... It's, it's, it is a couple of things. One, I don't want to chase a bunch of high net worths four times a year to invest. You don't want to be yeah fucking around with LPs, right? So yes. I don't mind that the clock starts, right? And they're earning a preferred return. Um, two, I like to tell a founder, hey, all right, you have a fast situation. Well, shoot. Uh, the day that we sign the docs, I can fund the money. I don't have to wait for capital calls. And, you know, with high net worths, especially with our model, um, it's become very easy to raise capital, right? We've had, we've had some, we've had some wins. We've had some good success. And so, uh, our investors trust me. They trust us greatly. Uh, they bring their friends. Uh, and, you know, when I tell them we are raising, it does not require a ton of effort. They say, okay, send the docs. Where can I send the check? Right. Uh, so, while it sounds hard to have a lot of investors, if you do right by them, you're transparent with them, you communicate with them frequently, uh, and you know you get a few wins, uh, they actually end up becoming a pretty wonderful, uh, uh, consistent, growing uh, uh, capital partner uh, because they do refer. So that's been our experience, my experience. Uh, with the way we run. And your deployment schedule is pretty quick too, right? You have a three-year yeah. deployment or two-year deployment. I think I remember one year LP deck. One year deployment. Okay. One year. So yeah. when I raise the capital, I call it right away. And then I've got 12 months to put it to work. Uh, that idea being that if I'm not able to deploy it in a year, the market has gotten away from us, right? Like there's no longer a real asset class here that we like anymore. I need to give the money back to our investors. So it's a very investor-friendly term to have a one-year deployment schedule. Um, additionally, the fact that we raise the money each year means they grade me each year. If they don't mm -hmm. like what I'm doing, they won't reinvest. Uh, again, very investor-friendly, uh, very non-traditional. Another way we're the anti-VC. We're the anti-VC both with entrepreneurs and with investors. Um, Right. They're not waiting for 10 years to see if there's anything that's going to percolate. I mean, they're seeing rapid Correct. deployment of capital. They're seeing how they're performing. And then how does the crossover fund work? I mean, do you do and how do you manage the follow-ons? 
we cross pollinate and our investors are fully aware. So mm-hmm. we make that known up front. We will cross. If we have a portfolio company that's performing well, we are going to reinvest. And we're going to do so with an even bigger check than we did the first time because our funds have grown over time yeah. each year. So new LP uh, in fund four knows that he might be in a deal that was in fund three and has to be okay with that. He's got to be okay with it. If he's not okay with it, I'm not the right fund for you. Um, right. But we only cross-pollinate like that when the company's performing. And I tell that to founders too. Like, listen, we have follow-on capital, right? Uh, and I can cross-pollinate, but you got to earn it. We don't do follow-on into distressed portfolio companies. <laughs> the follow-on in the same round, right? Like, you couldn't raise the rest of it, right? So we... That's not really okay. You made your bet. You're not going to make the same bet, right? It's, you know, we are... Very upfront with what our follow-on capital is and what it, you know, when we use it. Uh, I don't want somebody to think like, oh, it's from the same fund, and you know, if that fund gets old and you're kind of struggling, we'll give it to you anyway. Like, we don't do that. What about the People's VC? That's on your LinkedIn. You have a really nice. So we're talk about your uh, your content creation because I think that's super important too. But what about the People's VC? What's that? What's that mean? Uh, very similar. We're VC. I am extremely approachable, right? I'm the VC of the people. My email address is all over the place. It's on our, it's on our every page of our website, right on the front. It says email me directly. It's on my LinkedIn. Uh, it's on every blog that I write. Uh, we are the VC of the people. Reach out to me directly. In fact, that's how I prefer to meet <laughs> founders is for them to just cold email me. The way we run, there's no high and mighty here. There's no ivory tower. You know, VC of the people. I like it. How do I get a title? I want to be like the good, I want to be the good enough VC, right? <laughs> That's a great title. I'm his yeah. you. No one, no one will ever forget that. It's yeah. a great, like, great like, name. Not, I'm not going to say I'm spectacular, but I'm certainly not going to be the worst. I'm like the good enough VC or like the most handsome VC, um, <laughs> self-proclaimed. I think right. the good enough is the way to go. If I, I mean, I <laughs> good enough. There we go. Not saying anything about you, but the good enough is just so <laughs> very apropos. I, I love the fact on your transparency. Um, I'm transparent. I'm probably not as transparent as you are. I mean, I, I give my returns, but I just give my returns more on a. I don't put it like on open facing, but as far as like internal documents, you know, um, annual share letters that I give to pretty much my whole network, I, I pretty much give my returns. I love that you put your returns on there. Um, 1.94x uh, net net of fees. So I mean that's 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 pretty good, right? I mean like from traditional VC standards, where only the top quartile have any type of returns. So I don't have the data. And even if you presented the data to me of what VCs are doing, I wouldn't believe you, right? Because that data is subject to selection bias, reporting bias, a thousand things. So um, I don't worry about how other VC perform. We, We make our track record very public. If you're an investor and if you think, uh, 1.94 net cash on cash return after fees and carry is a is a good return. Uh, uh, after you know, generally three years is our, our our usual exit period. Great, I'd love to talk to you. I'm right for you, right? Mm-hmm. If you if you're running, if if you think a 10x is what you prefer, that's not me. We don't put that up there for investors. We put that up there for founders, right? So a founder might ask, hey, like you know, how, like 
What do Who you are expect? You? Yeah. Yeah. Right. Like, what's your expectation? Are you, or like, do you want me to be a 10x cash on cash for you? And I say, no. Our gross returns are closer to two and a half X. And that's a wonderful day. If you can generate three times cash on cash for me within three years, that's a big win. And I'll go to dinner and I'll have a great time. That's great. So we really put that up there, or really, frankly, exclusively put that up there for our founders. Uh, we want them to see what we've done in the past. And hence, you know, not only that, hey, look, we're, we're successful, we're, we're, we're decent at this, but also, uh, I'm not going to try to stuff you with capital and, you know, try to force you to IPO. It's not our model. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And even, I know you don't do it for your LPs, but what was most interesting about your, the data you presented is the low amount of misses to date and companies being alive. And I mean, the polarization of distributed outcomes and venture capital have gotten so ridiculous. And we're going to talk about valuation, right? But like, it's to the point now, and um, a buddy of mine uh, over at Sopra's Capital, he wrote a long form today about it, that I think miss rate is going to be a metric that's going to be super important in the next five to 10 years. Because mm-hmm. you can't, I mean, if you have one return that's 15x and, you know, 15 zeros, you know, that doesn't show consistency to me. That doesn't show that you have sets in the reps. It doesn't show you have discipline. So in the fund structure model, I know the fund, you know, in, in BC, right? There's, you know, you know, you have to, every, every deal has to be a fund returner and there's a bunch of capital and you forget the losers and they kind of die off. In the growth equity model, when you have an actual fund structure, how does that math work? How do you calculate that? Right. So you, you brought up a, the traditional model, which is, hey, you know, I need a, I need a fund returner, right? Well, yeah, there's a lot of zeros in that particular fund. So sure, they need the fund returner. In our model, we don't need the fund returner uh, because we do not strike out as much. At the same time, uh, I'm not hitting 10Xs. I've never gotten a 10X cash on cash. Best we've ever done is seven and a quarter. Right. And that was a great outcome. And that's a spectacular outcome. Right. But it's not a 10 and it's not a 20. Right. You know, Uh, so we do not crush it as often with crushing that definition being 10x, 20x. Uh, But do we get plenty of three X's without striking out? We do. And what I tell investors, especially, is look, you can go to the hall just getting on base, right? Hit doubles and singles, triples. You'll have a great career. You don't have to home run every time you step up to the plate. And so I am, if staying with the baseball analogy, swinging for a much higher batting average, right? But maybe uh, outcomes you're not going to read about in the Wall Street Journal or on TechCrunch or Crunchbase or whatever. And I'm okay with that. That's, that's, I don't know how to invest. I don't know how to find TEDx's. Uh, so it's just, it's not our model. Mm-hmm. So what is the, um, what is like the threshold for default to live company for you that it's got enough product market fit that mm-hmm. when you invest, you, you can see that, you know, this is probably not going to be a zero. It's, you know, we can sell the tech, we can sell the customers. Where, where, where is that for you? What level of product market fit is that? The definition of for me is two million of ARR if you're a software business and up. So 
we are not early stage. The, you know, where we've had failure in the portfolio, we invested too early. We invested in businesses that uh, still did not know who their ideal customer was, right? Still did not know uh, what it would take to scale a sales team. Uh, maybe still had not learned how to hire properly, right? They've burned through too many VPs of sales, for instance. I mm-hmm. find from experience, bad experience, that if you are at 2 million of ARR and up, you've learned a lot, right? You've learned, okay, uh, I've had some success, uh, but I've also probably been beat up a few times, right? And at the same time, you know who you are. So, you know, the founders that we're investing in, they all want to be very successful, right? But they've probably learned that, you know, the probability of me IPOing is pretty slim, but the probability of me getting from, say, 5 million of ARR to 15 million of ARR in a few years and then selling is really high. And that's the outcome that I'm going to shoot for. Whereas, a much earlier, yeah, and that ten to twenty percent dilution—that's meaningful dilution, or that's not as meaning dilution for the you know three to five to six million of ARR at that multiple, right? And the early early stage founder, right, who does not have much meaningful revenue, uh, uh, that individual still views themselves as you know I'm an IPO candidate. Uh, you know, I, I, they wouldn't mm-hmm. commit their lives to it if they didn't think that. And so I am not going to woo that individual with the revenue multiples at which I invest. It's not going to happen. Uh, so I do need founders who are further along, uh, where there's track record of uh, performance, right? Multiple years of financials, multiple customers. They've lost a lot of customers. They've won a lot of customers. They've upselled a lot of customers. They, they know who the customer is. Uh, and they have a pretty keen understanding of how what that outcome is going to be. Uh, uh, and they are realistic about it. Anyway, that's how we arrived at the 2 million of ARR. It's, it's, it's the only area we know how to invest. And how much in... And this is a range, right? What's the range of burn that a company hits before they hit 2 million in your, in your portfolio? We want to invest in businesses. So let's stick to software just for the moment. Uh, we want to invest in businesses that are generating at least 80 cents of ARR for every dollar of net investment ever. The definition of net investment being equity plus debt minus cash. Because if you look at publicly traded comps, those businesses, tend to be, at the time they IPO, generating roughly $0.67 of ARR for every net dollar of investment. So from a burn perspective, we are looking for businesses that are at least, generally speaking, at a, uh, you know, at that level of cash efficiency, you're probably at at least two to one ARR to burn, three to one ARR to burn. Uh, You are cash efficient, uh, especially as per the definition of, you know, what publicly traded IPOs did uh, uh, at the time they went public. You are a pretty horizontal player. I mean, you play within the same stages, the same tactics, the same style of deal entry, special situations you talked about. Tell me how I work hard 
you work 10x harder than me. I can just tell. I mean, my wife hates me for how much I work. I couldn't even imagine what your wife's like. You must be a phenomenal husband when you're home. <laughs> like, I, I can't, I can't even comprehend it because you, you know, work your ass off. It's very evident with, you know, the amount of stuff you're pumping out online to the amount of deals that you're doing and the capital you're deploying and being a single male and Joe. But so how do you get comfortable at the pace that you deliver and being a generalist, you know, within, you know, the SaaS categories from a vertical perspective? We are generalists for sure, but we've learned a lot uh, and studied a lot about what good SaaS, again, sticking to SaaS, looks like. Uh, and given the stage that we invest at, right, your Series A+, plus, you've got at least 2 million of ARR, hopefully you've got 5 or 10, right? Uh, there's real data there for me to analyze. Real, you know, there's real a quantitative approach can be taken. Um, so that is the way that we approach uh, uh, every deal is quantitatively. We do not invest based on qualitative factors like, oh, how good do I think the product is? Uh, how, who, who is the team? Uh, uh, you know, how good do I think the team is? Uh, who is the, who is the, uh, are there patents here, right? Uh, who are the other investors? That's just not how we approach things. Um, so I have found that when you take a really quantitative approach, so long as you can understand what the business does and those metrics look good, more often than not, we'll work out, right? So again, sticking to SaaS, uh, while we might be generalists, right? We care about cash efficiency. We've talked about that. We care about net dollar and gross dollar retention. We care about who your customers are, what kind of contracts they sign, right? So it's not just always oh, this business growing and does it have a high level of ARR. All of these other quantitative factors uh, are critical. And as such, we can get away with being generalists. Uh, once you start investing much earlier stage, right? There's no quantitative. It's all qualitative. I don't have the skill set for that. Our approach allows us to be generalists. And you know, while we might be generalists from a vertical perspective, an industry perspective, we are not generalists from a SaaS perspective, right? Like we know software. We've learned a lot, both the hard way and the fun way. You know, when it comes to, all right, I, this uh, software business, I can look at the data, I can look at the business, I can look at the customers, and I can see, you know, this is probably an area where they should move to something that's more market, right? Or this is an area where they're, they are, they're making mistakes based on uh, what we've seen and our experience in other SaaS businesses. Um, so yes, that's a long-winded way of saying we can get away with being generalist given how we approach the underwriting. Content creation. How much time are you spending on that? A lot, but... <laughs> I'd what, say so. One thing I would say is the content that I put out is content that I am like very interested in myself. Right? Correct. Like it's my right. You're doing the work research. anyway. Right. I want to know what is the median level of net dollar retention for companies that have gone public at the time they've gone public. So I'm going to do that research and I might as well write a blog about it and put that out there, right? So everybody knows. And we, we've, we've built a SaaS, you know, we have our blog on our website, but we also have the SaaS metrics page, which lists all the metrics that we found of all the companies that have gone public and what they were at the time of IPO, 
right? We think that data is important. So, you know, when I write about an S1, when I write about a company about to go public, I read the S1. I read that because it's interesting to me, right? And so I'm going to write a blog about it. You will never see a blog from me that's not something that I care about or am interested in. So you will not see a blog from me ever about, hey, the 10 mistakes you should avoid when raising capital. No. Uh, but will you see something real nerdy from me, like today's blog, which is uh, the amount of net investment software companies took on prior to going to IPO? Yes. Uh, so it's stuff that I am interested in and it's research I'm doing anyways. So I, I get you for one there. Yeah. It's the same thing with me in this podcast. I want to have these conversations with investors and I want to ask these questions. Why not record it? Right. Right. Exactly. Try to get a little bit of scale. Huge. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, it's impossible to get scale as a solo JP, but maybe, this, you know, maybe we can get something going on here. What's worrying you today? What's got you panicked? Yeah, valuation. I always sit there and think about, man, is the market going to come to me? Are we going to, re- in other words, are we going to return to 2019 levels of multiples? Uh, or uh, am I just going to miss the boat? I'm not going to be able to deploy capital. We are finding deals to do. My level of deployment is definitely uh, lighter than it used to be. Uh, I worry about it more being able to find companies at a good valuation. And so, uh, you know, if we can't find companies at a good valuation, we'll just give our, the money back. We're not going to put LP money to work no matter what. Uh, we care. It's my money too, my parents' money, my friends' money, you know, people that believed in us from day one. Valuation is what worries me the most in terms of are we going to be able to find a deal based on valuations that we think are reasonable? Yeah. So tell me, like, how do you how do you get to reasonable valuation? Like, what's the heuristic that you look at? I mean, obviously, if you if you go through your blog, which I've had, it's like valuations are up, valuations are up, valuations are up, right? It's just it's a constant. It's a constant drive upwards. So where, where in your mind is this, this the set? How do you look at public comps? How do you look at how that translates down to you? You've obviously had some exits in you know, earlier stage companies that aren't you know, mega you know, deals, but kind of like that sub $250 million you know, range of M&A and strategic finance recap activity. So how do you, how do you make that, that, that connection to what's reasonable? I look at three things. First thing we look at is where are public comps, right? And this is something we blog about every quarter because uh, uh, we update the data every quarter. Uh, and sure enough, public comps are rising. Uh, you know, the median software business is trading around 17 times. Now that's down. Last quarter, it was 20 times. And that's quite a drop to go from 20 to 17 in one quarter, right? Uh, but it's, data has done that before. It's not unusual to have big moves like that in the past three years. But public comps is where we start. It is our view that a publicly traded company should receive a much higher multiple than a privately traded company, or not traded, than a private company, uh, just given size, liquidity, cachet, et cetera. Scale. Um, this scale, all of that. The, the, the second thing we look to, acquisitions of publicly traded companies. Um, we do not look to private acquisitions because that data is pretty corrupt, right? Corrupt with biases, uh, selection bias, reporting bias. You don't know the structure of those deals. So we look to public software companies that were purchased. And on median... Uh, public, public, public companies that purchased other software companies. No. 
public software companies that were purchased either by Salesforce, for instance, a strategic, or by private equity. So in the past... Going back private. Yeah. Going back private. In the past, because because that data is honest, right? I can see that company's mm-hmm. revenue and that those transactions are always cash and stock or just cash. And in the event that they're cash and stock, the stock's actually worth something. Like you're getting Salesforce's stock, right? Like it has a real value that we can see in the market. There have been seven deals since December 2020. Those deals were all on median. Uh, uh, I think the multiple is like eight times, eight and a half times. We wrote a blog about this pretty recently. It's pretty dramatic. Uh, and so that gives you a sense that even going private, public companies going private, they're not getting 20 times, right? They're getting eight. And then the third thing that I look to that really shapes our valuation is where are we at little old Blossom Street selling businesses at? So we've had some good exits, right? Um, We've had some okay exits. They span the scale. On median, our exits are happening at seven times cash on cash. Sorry, seven times ARR. For the businesses we sell. That's, That's this year's current ARR. That's current that is, ARR. That is current immediate ARR at the time we sold the business. The median is seven times. So and what's the, what's, the, what's the growth rate? The median growth rate on that? I don't know, actually. Uh, it's all over the place. You know, those are good exits, right? So these are businesses that are 10 million plus in ARR. Uh, the lowest grower is probably 20%. The highest growth okay. was, you know, tripling year over year, right? Um, Got it. Uh, all over the place. Uh, so none of them are flat, right? These are no. these are companies that are all have have escalation. Their burn is probably de minimis. Good businesses, meaningful ARR, good growth. Companies we sell, and we've had a lot of exits. Uh, I shouldn't say it that way. We've had more exits than deaths materially, right? And, and we've had enough exits to where we can see. You know, what, like, 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 like that's a data set. We've had enough exits where we have a data set, and that data set's telling me seven times ARR. And then I look to public companies that went private, either via a private equity firm buying them where we have the data, or a public company buying them, and those exits are happening at a median of eight times, right? And then I have public comps, which are currently 17 times. I am going to drill down to the exits that we are having, and then secondarily to the acquisitions that we see of public companies. So that is, those are how we arrive at our baseline, which is roughly eight times current ARR, or if you're going to give us a capped participating preference, I'll go up to 11, right? Mm -hmm. But I am not doing 15 times without it, non, uh, 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 in any scenario. I'm not doing 20 times, right? Um, I will go to 11 if there's a capped participating preference. If there's an uncapped participating or uncapped preference, sorry, a non-participating preference, sorry, uh, I'm going to be at eight. And there's a lot of founders who are like, man, that's not, uh, I'm going to go get 20 times. I'm like, that is great. You should definitely do that. You should only talk to us if you're optimizing for speed, flexibility, perhaps partner, but if you're optimizing for valuation, 
I am not your fund. So how how are you how are you winning deals? Like I, I understand that you're kind of special situation. You're fast. You're nimble. You know you're you're having this conversation probably a gazillion times. You're seeing like these doe eyes. They're thinking how you, you're you're trying to fuck me, right? My friend down the street got this, but I mean, we just had an exit right now where you know we got out. I mean, it was a over hundred million dollar exit with a market that wasn't that much bigger than that, and. We got out and the company is, you know, did not hit numbers and now they're kind of being forced to profitability, right? And that's that's something that happens when you optimize for valuation and you can't grow and your private equity, you know, your private equity firm that buys you gets pucker butt and, you know, you can't raise on that valuation again. So you only have one other option and that's to cut. Right. So what is how are you having this conversation with founders? How is it being received? I'm very direct with founders and I tell them, uh, we are a good fit for you if you are looking for speed, if you are looking for uh, pricing an inside round or corralling outsiders with our term sheet that, that they only follow, they don't want to price. Uh, if you are doing a small round in a large company, in other words, we are only good for you if you are looking for what I like to deem call special situations. If you just started raising and you've got, you know, it's not even worth the conversation. Yeah. It's not. And I'll tell you, and I'll tell you on the front end, right? I share our multiples right on the front end. Like, Hey man, these are the ranges we come out at. If, if you need flexibility or speed, we're a great option. If valuation is something super critical to you, you're going to do better elsewhere. Evaluation is number one. It's not us. If valuation is number two or three for you, maybe we should chat. Awesome. Sam, what's the best piece of business advice you've ever given? Probably something that, you know, we had a last conversation, right? I mean, something I said to you. <laughs> I don't know that it's the best. Yeah. Okay. But it's, let's call it what I would say good advice. And it's pertinent to this uh, environment that we're in, which is raise the money that you need. And that'll allow you a lot more optionality on the valuation you can take on what your future trajectory looks like. You don't have to force yourself to be a unicorn. So raise what you need as opposed to raising what some big VC gives you at a really high valuation. That turns you into a binary outcome, sets you up for a restructuring if it doesn't work out. Uh, and you know, you very well could be out of CEO at some point. That would be the advice I would give. And in some ways, this is the barber telling you, you need a haircut. That's fine. Take it with a grain of salt, but raise what you need, not, you know, what you can get at a really high valuation. Yeah. I think, um, I think the two worst places to play right now in venture capital are seed stage and like late stage. <laughs> because yeah. late stage, yeah. it's uber competitive. Seed stage, it's just delusional. Who's public enemy number one, by the way? Who, who's What's causing this? Uh, SoftBank uh, was public enemy number one. Uh, originally, they are the original. Yeah, they're, 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 the, they're the original. I mean, they ran around through cash at businesses that weren't really tech companies at really high valuations. Uh, I really feel like 
that is what started the rush to overpaying for growth. So what about at your stage, though? I mean, is SoftBank going down as low as you play right now? Or do you see the Tigers? Do you see... like Who's, who's like really kind of murking the waters for you? Um, Jerome Powell? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, uh, I think Jerome Powell is... Uh, yeah. You know, there's, the, there, there's something to that that, you know, I mean, his innovation of like giving away free money is... Uh, it's definitely meaningful. Yeah. Venture uh, is interesting to a lot of investors because uh, of what's effectively known as uh, the Tina trade. There is no alternative, right? So you can't earn uh, a fair return uh, investing in bonds. Uh, uh, you can't put money in the bank and just leave it there. Uh, so there is no alternative. These nice options that used to be there for you to generate a return are no longer really there. So what has happened is capital has migrated into higher returning asset classes. Uh, and as a result, uh, venture uh, has seen a flood of capital. Uh, and that is ultimately, if we want to be very macro about it, that is the guilty party. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Sammy, thank you so much for uh, jumping on with me. It's been an absolute pleasure. I've been following for you for years. I know we've collaborated and talked about some deals, but it's been great to get you know know you more formally and uh, keep kicking ass, man. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's a real pleasure. I, 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 I'm humbled that you selected me to, to be on the show. Thank you for tuning in to the Capital Stack Podcast. Make sure to share this with someone you know that can benefit from this content. Remember to support this show by rating, reviewing, and subscribing. David Paul is the founder and general partner at DWP Capital. All opinions expressed by David and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinions of DWP Capital. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for decisions. David and guests may maintain positions in the securities discussed on this podcast.